Discussions about the Iliad are often focused on the leading stars of it, such as Achilles, Hector and Paris. But what about the supporting cast? In this podcast, I've picked out three characters who are used to comment on the themes of the Iliad, the other characters and the wider society. In a sense, they're the B-listers or linear B-listers. So join me as I talk about Thersites, Scamander and Sarpedon. What have the Romans ever done for us? Hello and welcome to the Ancient History Hound podcast. My name's Neil and you can find me on Twitter at AncientBlogger. I've also got a website, ancientblogger.com, which is full of ancient history themed content and links to my Facebook, Instagram and my YouTube. In this episode, I'm going to look at three characters in the Iliad who perhaps don't always get the coverage I feel they should do. They are Thersites, Scamander and Sarpedon. All three offer different ways of understanding the themes of the Iliad and the other characters in it. Whilst I'm talking about the Iliad, I just wanted to say a couple things about it. And I should add that this is largely aimed at me or be me all those years ago when I first started reading the Iliad as a set text. I still got the copy from my student days. It's well worn and has seen better days and I'm sure there's a joke there somewhere. The Iliad as a text was how I've always experienced it. But the reality was far different. It's an oral poem and a huge one at that. A quick squiz on Google has it containing around 150,000 words. To give this some context in terms of performance, I did some basic number crunching. If you are reading the Iliad out loud and at the average speaking rate of 150 words per minute, it would take you around 16 and a half hours. Even if you read it as a book where you read a bit quicker, it isn't really that much quicker. It could take you between 8 and 10 hours. It's a real commitment, as I'm sure anyone who studied it will agree to. A worthwhile one, though, I should add. Now, I can appreciate that I'm dealing with a translation here, not the original Greek, and I'm not a professional performer of the time. Yet this does give us a sort of idea of the enormity of performing the poem. It suggested that such a performance would have taken place over a number of days. The great Panathenaea at Athens has been cited as somewhere it was certainly performed, even over three days, which is what I've read, this must have been a real feat. Whether there was one definitive version, or several, and to what extent the poem may have changed, our debates fought with as much zeal and near bloodlust as any scrap in the Iliad. There's much to discuss about how the poem came into place. Perhaps Pausanias put it best when he wrote that the dating of Homer was a subject full of quarrelsome scholars, and he was happy to let it be. I'm also happy to join Pausanias there on the fence on this one. I just want you to try something. Try reading a page of it out loud when you get the chance. It's fine. No one will notice, trust me, as pretty much everyone's on their phone these days. And if it makes it easier, just plug some headphones in and pretend you're, I suppose, on a call. The chances are you'll experience the poem in a different way, or at least get a feel for it operating in a different capacity to reading lines off a page, which is what the majority of us do. Anyway, you can try this later. Let's get to our first linear B-lister. Let's start with Thersites, who's described in my edition of the Iliad as the most obnoxious rogue who went to Troy. Bow-legged, with one limping leg and shoulders rounded above his chest, he had a skull quite conical and a mangy fuzz-like mould. 
Thersites' name might come from the ancient Greek for audacious or bold, but it sounds more like it could be the archaic translation of swipe left. He's the first person attacked by a hero in the poem, and the hero in question is Odysseus. And what makes this even more notable, or tragic, depending on how you look at it, is that he's a fellow Greek. Thersites fought alongside Agamemnon, or in the Greek camp. We meet Thersites in Book 2. Agamemnon has just told the men that they may as well give up and head back home. This bizarre bit of behaviour is meant to test the Greeks, and it goes incredibly wrong, as there is now a surge to the ships and possibly the duty-free shop. After all, the sea must have been wind up for a reason. Odysseus saves the day by informing the men that this was really a test, and that they need to return. And it's in this setting that he clashes with Thersites, who is railing against having to go back to the camp. The crux of Thersites' annoyance is concerned with the rewards the men receive. The common soldier does the dirty work, but hands over anything he wins to be taken by those above him. Thersites even extends this to Agamemnon's treatment of Achilles, which has led to the fallout between the two at the beginning of the poem. Added to this, Thersites invokes a wider comment about the lead of the Greeks. What more does Agamemnon need? How much more can a rich king like him have. Thersites' complaints carry with them a wider challenge to the accepted values of the day, or at least those of the society the Iliad was set within. Kings accrued wealth, and commoners knew their place. Simple, right? Wealth and booty was about indicating hierarchy as much as the materialistic context of it. Imagine the situation then. It's tense, and one commoner in the form of Thersites is challenging his king and a crucially shared value in front of a crowd of his fellow soldiers. How might this be best resolved? Well, Odysseus turns up, and you might think that this was a good thing. After all, he is a character fully equipped with the ability to rationalise and argue back. Except it's not exactly what Odysseus does. Rather, he insults the Thersites a fair bit, and then lays into him with a staff. The beating is quite intense, leaving a large welt on the back of Thersites and a tear in his eyes. The onlooking crowd then descends into laughter, which adds the element of humiliation to the experience. At face value, this episode seems to offer up an early slice of heightened drama. The Greeks were moments away from abandoning the siege. Yet I think there's more going on here, and the character of Thersites offers us a way of looking at values within the text, characters, and even the possibility of literary rivalries. Let's start with the values. Distribution of plunder, loot, or anything picked up was baked into the heroic code, which guides much of the actions and conduct of Homer's characters. Considered in this way, Thersites' complaint carries a wider challenge to the code, which is possibly why it receives such harsh attention. It was considered, I suppose, a sort of social heresy to even think about doing this sort of thing or arguing that Agamemnon didn't deserve everything. What I find particularly interesting about this is how different audiences of antiquity might have responded to Thersites' criticism. It's likely that the poem would have been performed at large festivals, but perhaps also at the home of nobles, in both instances as I mentioned earlier, over a series of days. And we can cut the audience another way if you factor in when the performance took place. The archaic Greek the Hellenistic period and beyond is a fair old time. Different political situations and different people's perceptions of what was fair and what was just would have changed. 
A range of different demographics would have heard this episode, and I'm sure their responses would have varied. A noble might have thought Thersites challenged the established values as worthy of Odysseus' response. Could we say the same of an Athenian citizen of the 5th century BCE, to whom the idea of the common man having a fair share or a fair say had real traction? Then, of course, there would have been those who understood the response as valid within the accepted codes of the poem. In short, who knows? But what is important here is that this instance had the chance to make audiences react differently to it. And then there's the knock-on effect of reminding us, in the modern day, that the people of antiquity weren't a homogenous block. Thucytes' reference is another key feature of the heroic code, but not by what he said or done, but by how he looks. Homer is at pains to describe how ugly and misshapen he is. Point being, Thersites is in stark opposition to the standard value of the hero as looking handsome and athletically striking. A common feature in both the Iliad and Odyssey is that hero X always looks at his best when called into action, often with a patron deity giving him final makeup tips. One such hero is Odysseus, and Thersites gives us a chance to weigh him up. Thersites' rank as a lowly commoner, or lowly common soldier, might be why Odysseus fails to reason with him, and it's also akin to how Odysseus has problems with the common man or lower nobility in the Odyssey. In my podcast titled Odysseus Being Odd, Exile and Ruby Slippers, I talk about how Odysseus is unable to handle the political situation when he returned to Ithaca. The best example of this is when Odysseus has defeated the suitors and faces a tricky situation. A group of Ithacans led by the father of one of the suitors called Eupithes calls Odysseus out on what he's done, namely repeatedly caused the loss of young male citizens. He took a large number of them to Troy who never came back and now he's just butchered another bunch of them in the palace. Eupithes' words seem to gain traction with the crowds and at this point Odysseus faces him. Here's a situation tailor-made for Odysseus to deliver a winning speech upon. Yet the response Eupithes gets isn't a reasoned argument or winged words. It's, in fact, something else which is flying, namely a spear with his name on it. In fairness, it's Odysseus's dad who's the guilty party. But rather than condone this piece of violence, Odysseus charges the group with weapon in hand. Odysseus is mentioned in the brief description of Thersites before his beating. The poem makes reference that he was odious to Odysseus and also to Achilles. The fallout between Agamemnon and Achilles is cited by Thersites as proof of Agamemnon's poor judgement, as Thersites comments on how Agamemnon shows a contempt for Achilles, who is twice the man he is. Though Achilles doesn't involve himself directly, there is something of a pairing here. The term anti-hero is often used when discussing Achilles in the Iliad, particularly when he questions the reason for fighting. I'd be tempted to argue that Achilles forms this position from a safe place, and I don't just mean his tent. Achilles is situated far more within a Homeric world and heroic code than poor Thersites. Set against Thersites, we could ask ourselves, who is the true anti-hero? Achilles can question from a position of privilege. No one would dare discipline him through a beating. Thersites has afforded none of this. He's very much situated as an outsider from the way he's treated, from the way he looks, and even how he's referred to. On that last point, most Greeks or Trojans are afforded a patronym. That is to say, they are the son of A or B or X or Y. They may even have their own homeland mentioned. 
This is absent for Thucydides, and you might think this was due to his lowly birth. Perhaps so. But a paper delivered at the 28th Seminar of Homeric Philology by Panagiotis Stamatopoulos argues for an option which positions Thucydides in a very different context. Stamatopoulos points out that Homer seems to go out of his way to isolate Thucydides, who doesn't link into the story past this one incident, and the lack of a patronym and detail about his homeland affords him something of a disposable quality. Thucydides is deliberately non-heroic and so un-Homeric that he represents a rival poetic form, which we know as iambic poetry. If you're familiar with the likes of Archilochus, Seminides and Hipponax, you might know what I mean. Iambic poetry was in stark contrast with the epic type. It was brash and often rude, carrying none of the qualities of the epic form. In some instances, it was also called iambic blame poetry, where it involved the blame and finger-pointing at an individual. And blaming and finger-pointing is something that Thesites does in a fair amount. Stamatopoulos suggests that Thesites was some embodiment of the iambic blame poetry within the epic form of the Iliad. As Odysseus beats Thesites and humiliates him, so the epic form dominates and berates the iambic form. It's a bit of a literary scrap within the poem. It's certainly an interesting point. It's definitely very meta. I think through this we can appreciate poor Thersites a bit more. He stands out to me as someone who is ultimately challenging from a position where he's never going to win. In any case, let's move on to our second B-lister. If Thersites was described rather cruelly, our next character, Scamander, is done so in less defined terms. And the reason is simple. He doesn't assume the form of a human as other deities in the Iliad do. And this may well make him unique, because I can't think of any deity who interacts with mortals, even engaging in combat with them, without assuming some sort of human form. The river Scamander flowed from Mount Ida across the plains of Troy, and he first appears in Book 20, along with other river deities who are attending a meeting where Zeus finally allows the gods to formally intervene in the war. It's little surprise that Scamander chooses to side with Troy, as rivers were often closely associated with nearby cities or towns. Deities associated with rivers were known as the Potomoi, and it's fair to say that their worship was something which occurred all over ancient Greece. The river god in question might take the form of a reclined, bearded figure as a statue, or possibly with bovine features. For example, Kephisos, a river in Attica, was often shown with small horns. Rivers might even be invoked as part of a ritual. Strabo reports of the Eurotas, a river in Sparta, being sworn upon. And then there was even the practice of Greek youths cutting a lock of their hair and dedicating it to the local river. What Scamander therefore gives us is a contrast to the other deities who are worshipped across Greece. In Book 21 we meet the river god in his main appearance where he battles Achilles, and the poem has the Greek hero in full bloodlust mode. Achilles is pursuing Trojans left, right and centre, and he catches them as they cross the Scamander. The river is described as fast-moving, which forces the Trojans into a, I suppose, a bottleneck, as the river becomes cluttered with men trying to make their way across it. Scamander's first effect is passive but important. He's changing the nature of the fighting from the dusty plains of Troy to the marshy and aqueous landscape of the river and the riverbank. 
Purely as a poetic technique, this provides a different backdrop and a range of descriptive techniques available to the poet and the performer. For example, take similes, which are often used in the Iliad and frequently to accentuate the drama of combat. In a river, a mountain lion just won't cut it. The panicking Trojans swimming and wading from Achilles are compared to fish darting away from a dolphin. Presenting Achilles as a dolphin might seem a bit odd. It's not known as the most martially gifted and aggressive of animals. Well, not as much as I've ever experienced. But I feel the purpose of the simile isn't to directly hype Achilles. It's to show how pathetic and pitiful the Trojans were in the face of his pursuit. A slightly different perspective is being courted. One where the onus isn't just on portraying Achilles as the poster boy for Greek heroics in the traditional sense. This certainly seems to be the case in his first kill. Lycaon is caught on the riverbank, having abandoned his weapons to help him cross the river. He is unarmed and has no armour. Ultimately, he's helpless. The sense of helplessness fostered by that dolphin simile carries across. Lycaon pleads to Achilles and reminds him how he was previously taken prisoner by him and even goes so far as to clasp his knee, that classic supplicant move. In theory, this makes him someone who should be afforded some measure of mercy. The story of his previous capture works in tandem with him as a supplicant. The expectation here is that Achilles is bound by a code of conduct to retake him as a prisoner and spare him. But you know that doesn't happen and Achilles butchers him on the spot. This is quite shocking, as is what Achilles does next. Though the act took place on the riverbank, Achilles picks up the corpse and throws it into the river. And as he does so, he taunts the corpse of Lycaon, pointing out that he'll remain unburied and unmourned, and act as food for fishes. By this act, Scamander is involved in what was a continual fear of the ancient Greeks, improper burial. And this is ancient Greece 101. It was a fear which was built into Antigone's dilemma and predicated the execution of six generals after the Battle of Algonusi in 406 BCE, where the bodies of the Greek forces weren't recovered from a naval battle. Perhaps as well, this anticipates how Achilles will deal with the body of Hector. So it's a huge theme, and Scamander, unwittingly, provides a backdrop for it. Our next horribly disrespected corpse belongs to Asteropaeus, who was descended from a river god. This is something Achilles is aware of, and after dispatching him, delights in pointing out how the descendant of a river deity was bested by a descendant of Zeus. As an added insult, he points out how the river just flows by, unable to have helped him. Now, as the saying goes, you can lead a hero to water, but you can't make him respect universally held codes involving burial rites. The cumulative insults and a few more down Trojans causes Scamander to rise up in opposition, though not in the form of a human. He remains the river, albeit one with a voice coming from a whirlpool. He tries to remind Achilles of the dead heaped in his waters, but this is to no avail. Finally, the river god causes large surges to batter Achilles, who in turn tries to outrun them. This might not seem that serious. I always think of dogs being chased by small waves, but Achilles thinks that there's a genuine threat here. He even agonises over his fate and calls out to Zeus, stating that he is going to die here rather than under the walls at Troy. Just to recap, 
We've had Scamander used in a narrative sense to set up the inhumane treatment of Hector's corpse, or certainly anticipate it. And now the overarching of the fate of Achilles is being referenced by Achilles himself. The only other time it's referenced, as I can remember, is by his mum and by a talking horse. There's also been the wider implication of how extreme Achilles is behaving. Though Achilles escapes to the plane, Scamander is about to unleash more flooding across it, thus allowing the Trojans, which may well include Hector, to return safely. And here's where a god you would least expect to appear turns up. The god in question was Hephaestus, and he uses his fire against Scamander's waters. Hephaestus repels the waters, or at least holds them at bay. And Scamander, who hasn't come across as a particularly aggressive deity, retreats only after promising to play no further part in defending Troy. The defeat, or subjugation, of Scamander has been seen as a sort of pseudo-battle of Troy, with the river representing the walled city. I suppose you could think of it as the poem imagining what Achilles would be capable of had he breached it. It's a glimpse into a possible scenario and the horrors that may well result from it. In all this, Scamander comes across as quite a passive character, which isn't his fault in many ways. I'd argue that Scamander is crucial in helping us understand what made Achilles different and gave the poet and performer license to explore this away from the standard conventions of the Greek swashbuckling hero. For a start, we all know how good a soldier Achilles was. In the Iliad, some heroes are afforded an Aristia, which is an instance where they slay opponents at whim. Diomedes has a pretty famous one, as as does Hector, and I think it's Patroclus Aristia which nets him the most kills in the Iliad. But that would be too easy for Achilles. His Aristia comes with the involvement of Scamander, and it's the river which allows it to be explored in a different way. There's the removal of the standard battle experience, which is fighting with a spear in hand on terra firma, and replacing it with butchering opponents who seem anything but noble champions. Just compare the Aristia of the other Greek heroes on firm ground against noble or named champions of the other force. Compare that to Achilles and what he's just been doing. So Achilles' Aristia isn't coined in how many dead enemies lay about him, but how extreme he acts and to what extent he'll push the expected normal conventions. The main of this is the disrespecting of the dead and also disrespecting a god. Diomedes might have given Aphrodite a nick in the hand, but Achilles sought out a god to prove himself against. Scamander is that backdrop. He's where it takes place and who it takes place against. Much of Scamander is about understanding Achilles and understanding Achilles' Aristia. Achilles is allowed to occupy a different state within the poem, that of someone whose extreme rage and extreme Aristia is almost too much to be contained by the modern conventions. You'd almost be thinking, this is hubristic. Disrespecting bodies, taunting deities. If you read any character doing that in a Greek tragedy, you know where it's going to end up. In any case... There we have Scamander. I think he's unfortunate. He's a god in the wrong place at the wrong time. Next up, we've got Sarpedon. I now come to the last of our trio, Sarpedon. You could argue that he's a main character. He certainly features in both word and action. There's also the Euphronius Crater, which is a Greek vase, and it has an incredible image of him on it. If you get the chance, look it up. If you just type in Sarpedon vase, chances are it'll appear. However, I still find that he's a bit overlooked, or at least somewhat underrated. Perhaps that's just me. In any case, 
Sarpedon does give us a really, really good examination of the heroic code in both deed and action, and he's also fighting on the Trojan side, which gives a nice little bit of balance. Sarpedon is used to facilitate a discussion over the heroic code through his interactions with other characters. There's Hector, who he chides in book five, and chides is a great word, to Lepolemus, who he fights in the same book, and later in book 12, he discusses the heroic code with his colleague Glaucus, and it's that which is often associated most strongly with him. The first of these three dialogues is possibly the most surprising of the three. Hector is the creme de la creme of the Trojans, yet Sarpedon criticises him, leading to a wonderful description of Hector being made hot with shame. Much like Thucydides, the complaints against Hector are predicated on a lack of responsibility and a lack of action from the leadership. Sarpedon points out that the Trojan allies have travelled from afar and are fighting on the battlefield, yet Hector's immediate family are absent. Sarpedon points out how he's travelled from Lycia, which is the southern coast of modern-day Turkey, and even mentions the river of his homeland. And this is worth connecting to the point I made earlier about Scamander, about how rivers were often identified with where people came from. There's even a slight boast here by Sarpedon, because he didn't need this war. He comes from a wealthy home, and this works well to contrast with Thucytes, who make a similar complaint, although Thucytes wants what he deems is his fair share. But for Sarpedon, the commercial prospect of war has no real traction, and we'll learn how war is relevant to him in a later dialogue. The second dialogue is complemented with action, when Sarpedon fights Telepolemus. Both are technically descended from Zeus, Sarpedon via Zeus, and Telepolemus from his father Hercules. This is a bit of a novel twist, but also brings home what might have been experienced in reality when relatives, however distant, clashed with relatives. I find Sarpedon's experience of war in the Iliad as used as a vehicle to give us the realities of war and offer it to us in a bit more of a subtle way. Certainly, his early words spoke of a man who wasn't joining the defence of Troy for the sheer fun of it. In what is a standard format, Sarpedon and Telepolemus exchange words. But it's really Telepolemus who says the most, and it's not particularly pleasant. He moves to discredit Sarpedon by claiming that he cannot be a son of Zeus. Whilst pushing the claims of his own ancestry, in particular, he boasts how his father Hercules sacked Troy, which is a fair enough point, it's certainly very relevant. Sarpedon's response is more dignified. He doesn't disagree with Hercules sacking Troy, although how could you? But what's important is why Hercules sacked Troy. It was because the then king had reneged on a promise. Where Telepolemus, therefore, sees the sack of Troy by Hercules as through the optic of power and might, Sarpedon sees it in the context of a just act. It's a subtle difference, but an important one. Sarpedon does get a quip in. He refers to the promise broken by Hercules and says that he's going to issue a promise to Lepolemus himself, namely, this won't end well for him. It's not exactly Bond, but it's as close as you'll ever get in Homer. With the pre-fight chat over, both throw spears at each other, Sarpedon is injured in the leg, Tullipolemus in the neck, and you probably guess which one was fatal. In the third dialogue, book 12, Sarpedon chats with Glaucus, his cousin, who also travelled from Nicaea. It's a short exchange, but crucial in understanding the heroic code, or one version of it, the main one we often reference, and Sarpedon's relevance in the Iliad is often fastened to this dialogue. 
Sarpedon, spurred on by Zeus, is about to storm the Greek camp. He turns to Glaucus and says, What is the point of being honoured so, with precedence at a table, choice of meat and brewing cups at home in Lycia, like gods at ease in everyone's regard? And why have lands been granted to you and me on Xanthus' bank, with vines and fields of grain? So that we too, at times like this in the Lycian front line, may face the blaze of battle and fight well. That Lycian men might say, there are no common men, those lords who rule in Lycia. They eat fat lamb at feasts and drink rare vintages. But the main thing is their fighting power when they lead in combat. Sarpedon lays out what it seems like a contractual relationship. His political power at home is justified and legitimised through his martial prowess and his ability to lead the troops. In one sense, this seems logical. A political leader was expected to enforce his position by virtue of this. For example, think of Ithaca and how Telemachus was unable to offer a secure position because of his age. Had lineage acted as an absolute, Telemachus would have had no problems with suitors. It would have followed that he was either going to rule or would be ruling. The type of kingship in this period, or alluded to it, was supported really through dominance. If you couldn't display this, then rival families might launch a challenge. It feels closer to a gangster or sort of mob setup than it does our modern understanding of monarchy. One of my first thoughts about all of this was how Sarpedon's involvement in a war in a different land made any real difference to his reputation back home. But I can see now that it might work. The defence of Troy gave Sarpedon the chance to remind those around him that he was still the big cheese, or Megas Tauros, thanks to at Tough Note Jimmy for their translation there. The death of Sarpedon brilliantly captured on the Euphronius vase permits the hero to talk us through the heroic code when it applies to someone dead or dying, and he does so after being skewered by Patroclus. Sarpedon's main concern is that his armour will be stripped by the Greeks and that his corpse will be disrespected in some way. I don't feel the threat as being that which the Trojans experienced at Achilles' hands in the river and waters of Scamander. Here, I would argue, it's the prospect of his body not being taken by his kinsmen from the field, and the loss of his armour, which really scares Sarpedon. Above him, Zeus frets over whether or not to save him, and I wonder if this gives Sarpedon a special quality, because Zeus, the most powerful of the gods, doesn't act where other gods have been really quite happy to intervene and save their favourites from a gory end. I wonder to what extent Sarpedon is being shown to us as the common soldier, because he follows the heroic code to the bitter end, but really it doesn't save him, it doesn't benefit him. He has wealth and power, but this doesn't mean that he's any more immune to a spear in the chest taking him into the underworld. Sarpedon gives us a more of a rounded experience of how the heroic code met the reality of war. It's brutal, and I suppose that's the comment the Iliad makes consistently. Sarpedon's experience of war in the Iliad embodies much of the codes a hero or elite was expected to have, but it's framed in such a way as it's relevant to any soldier at any level. He's there, there's an expectation of him, and he intends to meet it, whatever the cost, and he pays the ultimate cost. With Sarpedon, then, we have the option of viewing the tension between the heroic code and reality. He behaves in a really, really dignified way throughout the poem, but ultimately, he's killed. None of this seems to benefit him a great deal. Well, I've come to the end, and as ever, I really hope you've enjoyed listening to this. If you want to come and say hi, as I mentioned earlier, I'm on Twitter, Ancient Blogger. 
Till the next time, take care and keep safe. Infamy! Infamy! They've all got it infamy!